So guys, you know how as a podcaster who is putting out, you know, consistent content on a daily basis, you can have mood shifts and changes in attitude and sometimes you are feeling very, very frustrated and you just want to be a sassy individual. Well, this episode was originally published a few months ago and I was very, very sassy during the episode. Ever since putting it up, I have felt kind of ashamed uh, of my attitude during the whole episode, especially because I inserted a lot of f-bombs out of sheer frustration without you know making them fit in making them make sense it was just me expressing anger and frustration and i think it is a very out of place for that to be in this episode because i am talking about a person who passed away uh, during this year and who inspires me in a very very positive way so why why should i be frustrated and why should i be cussing all over the place guys i have have been very ashamed of this episode, the original one, not this one. And <laughs> that's why I'm putting this one up. This version of the Betty and Dresden Affair episode is the final complete version, and I have expanded it with maybe 15 to 20 minutes of more content. So I have deleted all my unnecessary cussing, except in a few instances where it is more comedic and more has a point other than anger and frustration. So while listening to this episode, you may stumble upon different parts where I insert my own thoughts from my future self, or rather my present self, expanding on some ideas because what I thought about this case a few months ago has been expanded completely and my perspective has changed a lot, especially regarding to the ties between alien abduction, near-death experiences, our out-of-body experiences, and uh, death in general. Yeah, I, I was totally influenced by Joshua Kutchen's new book. So I just want to say why I was sassy during this episode, why I was cussing a lot, and that has been deleted, is because after reading this book and after going deep into the Betty Andreas and stuff, after researching a bit about Raymond Fowler and how he went from nuts and bolts to more uh, psychic consciousness approach to the UFO phenomenon, I was very, very frustrated how people treat the Betty Andreessen story, how they totally missed the mark because they want to reduce it to just alien nonsense and they want to completely disregard every aspect of the story, which makes a lot of sense to me and which shows that we are, you know, interconnected and that we have archetypes and that there is a lot of folkloric symbolism related to alien abductions. Alien abduction researchers just want to ignore that and stick to the nuts and bolts of this story. Especially after doing this episode, I read Bud Hopkins' book Missing Time where he talks about the Andreasen affair and completely disregards a lot of the most interesting high strangeness aspects of the case. So I was very, very frustrated and I conveyed that in a very inappropriate way in this episode. So all of those inappropriate parts I removed and now I present to you the complete expanded version of my Andreas and Affair episode of which I am very, very proud now. This has been bugging me for quite a while, and I have finally made something worthwhile of this episode, and I am very proud of it. So, on to the episode. 
Hey guys, so I am recording this intro bit retroactively after I already put out the episode and I'm going to re-upload it with this intro. So it has come to my attention that Betty Andreessen sadly passed away in March of this year. Now I am shook by this and completely weirded out because I've been I've been planning to finish the Andreessen Affair book for a few months now and I've been just putting it off and putting it off and letting the whole story simmer in my mind and I finished the book last weekend I think and I've been feeling like should I even put out an episode should I not I was not aware of her passing away I was thinking do I have anything to add to this whole case and then on a whim I just decided to create an episode today and put it out so I'm just weirded out by this strange coincidence and shook by the news to be honest so I'm going to read her obituary and sorry guys for making this sad it says Betty Ann or Andreas and Luca passed away peacefully at the home of her daughter Bonnie on March 18th 2022 in Martinsville, Virginia. Betty and her husband Bob had previously lived in Meriden and Cheshire, Connecticut and in West Palm Beach, Florida. Betty was internationally renowned due to the abduction experiences she had with otherworldly entities during her life. Her experiences are some of the most researched and heavily documented and were written about in a New York Times bestselling book, magazines and newspapers. In addition, Betty appeared on many TV and radio shows and lectures on the phenomena all over the U.S. Betty was a dedicated and loving wife and mother of seven children. She is survived by her husband of 44 years, Bob Luca, and four children, Mark, Scott, Bonnie, and Cindy, and two stepchildren, Tony and Wendy. She was preceded in death by three of her children, Becky, Jim, and Todd. They are eternally grateful for their amazing mother and everything she taught them through her strength, love, and faith. Not only was Betty a positive influence in their lives, but also in the lives of all who knew her. She was a very special light on this earth and will be dearly missed. Um, as you guys know, I also had losses within the last year or so, so I don't know. I'm, I'm just reacting to this. I was not made aware before making the episodes and now I don't know what to think about it. I'm so... I'm, in a way, I'm glad I made the episode, and in a way, I'm glad I focused my attention on this whole case and on this uh, very unique and very amazing person. As you'll see in my episode, I defend everything she experienced and everything she reported during her hypnosis sessions and how much her faith and her personality influenced the whole thing. So, sorry for the very grim intro, guys. Yes, sit back, relax, and let's learn about the amazing, about the baffling, and about the very peculiar experiences of Betty Andreessen. Hey guys, so I've had a case on my mind for a couple of months now, and I just recently finished reading the book related to the case. 
I've been thinking and thinking how I should approach this topic, how I should cover it. Obviously, I want to cover it. I'm doing an episode now on it. But how? How would I do this? It is a case that is one of the earliest abduction cases. It happened in 1967, which was five years after the Betty and Barney Hill abduction. It is one of the, if not the most well-documented cases of alien abduction, but also one of the most hotly debated ones, the most controversial case ever. It is discussed still to this day. Many podcasts have covered it. And I feel as though I cannot contribute anything if I, you know, read off of Wikipedia everything that happened and pretend I'm a normal podcast because I'm not a normal podcast. And this is not a normal abduction case. Oh, no. (laughs) If you are interested in this case, I would advise you listen to the audiobook version of the 1979 book, The Andresen Affair by Raymond E. Fowler. Although the version that was narrated as an audiobook was actually a new edition, which was released only a few years ago, I think the only difference is that it has an an epilogue that uh, goes into the writer's current opinions on the case and his, you know, later investigations, because the dude actually wrote, I think, four books on this case. This is the first book that was actually in the New York Times bestseller list when it came out, so it was a very influential book in the UFO community. Now, the writer in question, Raymond E. Fowler, is also a very influential UFO investigator. And though he is most well known for investigating this Betty Andreessen case, you may actually be aware of the Allagash abductions as well. The, um, I think it was in Maine, the lakeside abduction of four artists. Well, he was the one investigating that case as well, and he wrote the book on it. That case was even featured on Un solved mysteries, that's why a lot of people know about it. But regardless, the Betty Andreessen case is the most well-documented, most famous case that he investigated. The book is just amazing, but the narration of the audiobook is fantastic, because the whole book is kind of mostly transcripts of the hypnosis sessions done with the abductee, but the narrator actually gives different voices to the various different parties, and actually portrays Betty's emotions as best he can. He's not just reading words on a piece of paper. He is actually voice acting and putting in effort to convey what Betty was going through. So I highly suggest listening to the audiobook version. If you don't have your Audible credit or whatnot, just get a Scribd subscription. And no, I'm not sponsored, but Scribd is an awesome resource because it has hundreds and thousands of books for us in the paranormal community. It has like all the Lauren Coleman books on there. And a lot of the 14 books they have in their library have an audiobook available as well, completely free with the paid subscription, obviously. Now, why am I not approaching this episode uh, the traditional way of just going through the whole case and telling you everything that happened? Because there are a lot of podcasts which covered this, and a lot of podcasts have actually covered it much better than I ever can. So I highly suggest if you don't want to read the book, go listen to last podcast on the left. I think I think it was episode 333, The Andresen Affair, and they did a miraculous job, and I'm saying this mostly uh, because I'm biased. <laughs> because they go into the psychological and the psychedelic and the psychic aspects of the UFO phenomenon, which is very apparent in this case. Just go listen to that episode. Like, they they come to all the same points that I have come to independently. I thought about doing this very, you know, elaborate 
recently, but after listening to their episode, I'm like, I'm not that special. Other people come to the same conclusions as me. But what got me thinking after listening to that episode is, uh, why can't the rest of the 14 community actually come to these conclusions? Why does everybody have to stick to the extraterrestrial hypothesis and want every case to be about aliens and UFOs and nuts and bolts and completely ignore any psychological aspects of the whole experience? Are people just too invested in this childish, infantile idea of everything being physical and material and UFOs being spacecraft of aliens from different planets that are traversing the galaxy to reach us and blah blah blah. Well, that's why this uh, whole case is very controversial, because this uh, alien abduction starts off as a normal abduction scenario, but uh, goes into some very, very weird psychedelic and even religious territory. And this is my favorite abduction case now, which is a lot coming from me because I am an atheist. But this is a case which has a lot of religious symbolism and undertones. But I'm not the important one in this story. This is the story of somebody's personal experience, and everybody's personal experience is tied to their own subjective reality, to their own personality, to their own personal beliefs and biases, and is shaped and molded by them into the story that they perceive to be reality. Now, another thing that got me pissed off, like, I was looking for other podcasts which covered this, um, and I saw in some podcasts they're discussing, like, was this this a hoax because it is so different from every other alien abduction scenario. And I'm thinking, are people that idiotic that they cannot realize that alien abduction experiences are personal subjective experiences? What the person is telling you is not necessarily what physically materially happened. It is something that they experienced within their own minds. And let's say even if aliens are abducting people, and if this is something that is materially happening, the experience is still influenced by the psychological framework of the experiencer. And the story that they convey is a product of the material thing happening to them being filtered through their own mind. We are talking about experiences, we are not talking about objective events, because there is no objective evidence to any of this. All we have to go off of are recollections which we get through hypnotic regression. So saying that something may be a hoax because it is too kooky and too, let's say, religious and psychedelic, something that we obtained only via hypnotic regression by talking to somebody about their own personal experience and going deep into their mind without any physical evidence. No, it's not a hoax. People actually believe in what they experienced and it shapes and molds their lives. And who are we to say what is real and what is not if all of us are living in some kind of personal subjective reality that is completely different from the objective reality we all share. We live many realities at the same time with which overlap with each other. Yeah guys, as you can see this case just brings out a lot of emotions in me. It brings out a lot of emotions in a lot of people. UFOlogists have been trying 
trying to make sense of this case for decades. Psychologists are trying to make sense of it. And even religious folks are using it for their own personal agendas because it is a very religious thing as well. So let's start off with uh, the witness, uh, Betty Andresen. Now, at the time when this allegedly happened, 1967, she was living in South Ashburnham, Massachusetts. And uh, her husband had some kind of car accident. He was in the hospital at the time. So she was at home with her seven kids. And I think she was in her very early 20s at this point. Wow. Now, her mother and her father were also with her at home at this time because her husband was in the hospital. She has seven kids. Uh, they visited to help her out. Another thing you should know about Betty Andresen is that she was a fundamental Christian. Her whole life was being a mother to her children and going to church. She claims to have not been aware of the whole UFO thing or the Hills abduction case before this occurred to her. I mean, I'd say she was very busy in her life to waste her time on such nonsense. Unlike us. Anyway, this January night in 1967, something happened to her. Something weird. And she spent the next few years trying to recollect what she experienced to no avail. And one day she decided to send her experience and send a request for help in figuring it out to none other than J. Allen Hynek. But as we all know, Hynek was a very nuts and bolts guy. And when he read her account of a very kooky, religious, Christian, psychedelic. He thought, this is a crazy person and I'm just gonna ignore this. And he put it in some kind of pile of cases he had from what he deemed to be kooks. But eventually he got back to it and thought, this warrants actually some investigation. So he sent it to, I think, MUFON. And then MUFON sent the case over to their humanoid studies task force, whatever. They actually had a task force of people for humanoids studies. So they were probably looking over CE3, CE4 cases. The Hills abduction happened a few years ago, so hey, more and more of these cases of alien abductions are piling up and somebody needs to look into them. And the person who was tasked to look into this was the prominent ufologist Raymond E. Fowler. Now something you should know about Raymond Fowler is this, actually. He served as the director of scientific investigations for MUFON, and he even authored the first edition of the MUFON Field Investigator's Manual. So he was a very, you know, important figure in MUFON. Even though this was a kooky case, they assigned, you know, a very important guy to look into it. Later, he also served as the scientific associate for the Center of UFO Studies, or QFOS. I think it, I think this is where J. Allen Hynek was. And then he also served as an associate member and eventually as chairman of NICAP, which is the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. And I'm going off the top of my head, but I think when I read about him, he worked his day job in uh, military technology or something like that. I'm not sure now, but this was a very, very prominent, very respected guy in his field. And after reading the book, I actually love all the decisions he made during the investigation. So I'm just going to go over the more major points of what happened to Betty according to her own recollection of the events. And this episode is more of a commentary, more of me providing my two cents on the whole thing. Because this is a case that gets me thinking a lot 
lot about the whole nature of the UFO phenomenon. It is very, very different. It starts off as, you know, a normal abduction case, but just gradually gets weirder and weirder. So this night in January in 1967, Betty was at home with her kids, with her parents, cooking dinner or whatever, when her father saw through the window the sky lighting up and these small, big-headed beings climbing down a hill towards their house. Now, this reminds me a lot of the Fae folk. You're just looking at a hill and you see down the hill a lot of these little people just walking downhill and going towards your house and you have no idea what you're gonna do about it. You're thinking, well, I'm in an enclosed space. I am in my house. I'm locking my doors. I'm safe. Well, these beings proceeded to phase through the front door, which was closed and locked. Now, as a child, I remember this case because I was under the impression that the aliens actually phased through the walls of the house and entered the house that way. But no, this was like four or five aliens just phasing through the front door, which was closed. But they were phasing in some kind of jerkily weird motions like clockwork. It was very, very psychedelic. And at that moment when they entered the house, Betty realized that the rest of her family were essentially frozen in time. And the way she reacted to these entities is she thought they were angels. But instead of being, you know, initially very terrified of them, she actually treated them as guests and proceeded to cook some beef for them. Now, she was a bit startled by their appearance. Uh, These were, I think, three-foot-tall greys, but they had very bulky chests. Like in her drawings, and you can see in the book, not the audiobook, but the actual book, uh, a lot of drawings of everything she experienced. Like she accurately portrayed everything she was going through, all the beings, the later UFO, every every room she was in, everything. I highly suggest checking out the drawings in her book. But they seem to be very bulky in their chest, three foot tall greys, and they had some kind of blue uniform with an emblem of a bird on it. She also said something which is very interesting to me, that the texture of their skin was like they were made out of clay. Like they were not even living beings, but some kind of moving clay sculptures. Anyway, she proceeded to cook some beef for them, and the leader of the group, who was a bit taller than the rest of them, who called himself Kwaska, and who would later be the main guy she spoke with throughout her whole experience, he told her that they cannot eat foods like that, but their food needs to be burned. So she proceeded to burn the beef. And then once she burned up the beef and charred it up, they said, oh no, the food that we consume is knowledge that needs to be burned through fire. So at that moment, I think she uh, gave Kwaska a Bible. She had a few Bibles. She gave him one, and then he manifested copies of the Bible and gave them out to the rest of the aliens in the room. And then he manifested some kind of blue book, which he gave to Betty and which remained in her house for nine days after the abduction. It was a very integral... part of the whole investigation. What happened to the book, I don't think anybody gave a solid answer, just disappeared after nine days. I'm not gonna go into it later, but after the abduction and everything, Betty uh, attempted to read the book that was provided to her by the Salian, and she said it was like a 40-page book, not unlike the MUFON investigator's guide thingy. But the first three pages were essentially pages that were glowing of white light or something like that, and the rest of the pages had 
very different symbols on it that she could not make sense of. It was very otherworldly, but she felt it was knowledge that was bestowed upon her by a higher entity and that, you know, only she could look at it, though she did have her older uh, daughter look at the pages afterwards. Oh man, this is uh, this is such a complicated case. Just go read the book, guys. <laughs> Anyway, after this whole book debacle, they asked her to come with them. And per her recollection, it's not very it's not very well explained, but um, allegedly five entities entered the house, but one entity remained in the house to look after her family. But they entered through the locked door via some kind of mist-like slot. And one of these slots remained empty, and she entered this slot and was able to phase through her house along with the four other aliens. And they proceeded to go into their UFO. Now, something I can't remember now because this is the the beginning of the experience that I listened to uh, quite a while ago, but I believe that she witnessed aliens scooping up fish from a nearby lake into their UFO. I have a book that I did not start to read. It is a book about UFOs and their ties to water, and they also mention this aspect of her whole story, and there are a lot more aspects where it seems like the UFOs of these aliens charge up by scooping water from nearby bodies of water. But the whole thing with the fish, um, aside from the ictus symbology of uh, Christianity and whatnot, uh, the fish representing Jesus and all that stuff, it reminds me of the Carl Higdon abduction because the alien also one who abducted him told him that they were feeding off of the fish of the earth because their home planet was polluted and whatnot. Anyways, back to <laughs> Betty Andreasen. So once she entered the UFO, I mean, read the book, there are very detailed descriptions of the whole UFO, every room, everything, and she even drew everything. I think they showed all her drawings to some kind of engineer who looked at them and said, yeah, like, if you arrange all these drawings and compare them, they do actually match up uh, with what could be a plausible spatial configuration, you know, of a ship. But anyways, they proceeded to get her naked. Uh, well, not forcefully. She They allowed her to uh, dress into some kind of gown or something because she's a lady. And then they controlled her body by making her paralyzed, unable to move, and lay down on a table where they examined her with the whole shebang, you know, needle up the nose and needle in the navel just like with uh, Betty Hill. They noticed a part of her was missing because she had a hysterectomy. So, you know, more ties with the whole breeding program thing that people associate with aliens. Future Darwin here. So, why the aliens probed her nose, stuck a needle up it, is because they were removing this um, round thingy that turned out to be an implant. And yes, you can see the Betty Andreessen affair as the first case of alien implants. The alien implant would lead up to further investigations uh, of Betty's childhood and what she claims to have been, you know, childhood abductions when they first implanted her. Also, I wanted to point out that there is this motif of a lot of women who are abducted actually having hysterectomies done prior. I know that Betty Hill had a hysterectomy and that the aliens were putting a needle up her navel for some reason. Now, I don't know if Betty Andreessen kind of 
got to this info before the hypnotic regression and then just emulated what she heard from, you know, the Betty Hill case. But I do know, and I can't remember off the top of my head, other women who are alien abductees who have had hysterectomies. Also, Carl Higdon had a vasectomy, and that's the sole reason why he claims that his alien brought him back to Earth because they were kind of collecting people and animals and whatnot and probably thought, hey, he could not be used for breeding purposes. Back to the show. But after this whole examination thing, they put her in some kind of... Uh, full body case but which was in the shape of a seat it was like some kind of seat but it had a clear enclosure around it so she'd sit there and they would enclose her whole body and fill this thing up with goo with slime but then some tubes would drop down from the ceiling or whatever and go into her nose and mouth so she may breathe while suspended in this goo and they told her that this is necessary so she may survive the travel to their place they never necessarily said that they are from another planet, but rather from another place. Which would, you know, remind me of fairies again, and everything Jacques Vallée talked about in his books. But hey, maybe it's, you know, interplanetary travel and G-force and whatever, and her body needs to be protected. Well, this tube that went into her mouth actually dispensed some kind of liquid that they said was also to protect her during the travel. And this is another part of the case which reminds me of fairy lore, because as you guys may know, I'm a fan of Joshua Kutchin and especially his first book, A Trojan Feast, which is all about food and and drink offerings between humans and fairies and aliens and Bigfoot. And I think in his book he actually mentions the Betty and Drayson abduction. Because once they provided her this drink, they proceeded to take her to their place. And that book mentions a lot of cases where there are food or drink offerings between fae and humans, and humans who consume the food or the drinks of the fae are able to phase into their reality. So were they taking her to their planet, or were they taking her to their fae dimension? Well, we'll look into that a bit later, but something I remember now that I wanted to also mention. Yeah, yeah. So um, when they were examining her, something... Uh, dropped off the ceiling and scanned her body and she said that this thing looked like a giant eye it was some kind of scanner but had an eye-like shape and lens on it now this is something that a lot of abductees have reported and most famously has been reported by the two fishermen who were abducted by elephant skinned aliens in Pascagoula Mississippi in the 70s one of them was also examined by some kind of giant eye that that dropped off the ceiling and he was very terrified of it. I'm trying to think now, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I know a lot of, a lot more alien abduction cases have this device, which is like a giant eye. Now, since I'm all about Jungian archetypes, we all know that the eye is a Jungian archetype and maybe these experiences are tapping into the social unconsciousness where we all have the eye as an archetype and pull out archetypal images. But... Uh, but maybe I'm just talking shit, maybe 
that's the only instance of something you can tie to Jungian archetypes in this case, maybe we can disregard that, huh? Well, no, because <laughs> what happened next is bullshit insane. So the aliens took her to their place, but uh, their place w when they first arrived was this giant tunnel that seemed to be chiseled out of a mountain or something. And she stood on this levitating platform with two aliens which had black hoods over over their heads like she was going to an execution or something but anyway they traveled and traveled through these tunnels in this chiseled out rock or whatever and once they exited the tunnel they entered a place which was completely red the sky was red everything was just red she saw in the distance some kind of city or whatever and the more closer they came to that city the more she could see rectangular buildings that are covered in lemur-like alien entities which were, you know, crawling over the outside of these buildings, but they were not really lemurs. They had giant eyes, two giant eyes on stalks which came from where their head should be. So, you know, they were headless but instead of their head, they had two stalks which ended in giant eyes and these eyes could move independently like a chameleon's eyes. And she was very terrified of these beings. Um, the aliens that were alongside her just ignored these things and they just proceeded to go through this wasteland with these beings all over the buildings and moved into another place which now turned completely green. The sky was green, everything was green. She could see buildings and pyramids in the distance, but it was every everything was green. And once they entered this green place, these aliens took off their black hoods and felt very comfortable like this was actually their domain and the red place was something that they feared. I mean, <laughs> symbology of colors. And you know, lights and colors play an important part in all UFO and abduction scenarios. Nobody really wants to go into that. I think Joshua Cutchin said in, an, in a podcast episode that I listened to recently that he is about to release a book about lights and the paranormal. So I hope he went into that because I'd really like to read somebody do a deep dive of just why why Betty saw uh, these places in these different colors and what they mean and if there is some kind of con connection to the social unconsciousness. But we're going there. So in this green place, they proceeded to go on top of what she said was a pyramid, but not really an Egyptian pyramid, but a pyramid-shaped platform with a flat top. And on this flat top was some kind of structure that resembled the head of the Sphinx, but it had eight cheeks and she said that it was very feminine in shape but also very masculine uh, whatever that means but we're still not there yet no on this platform before her stood i think she said a 15 foot tall giant bird that resembled an eagle in shape and there was some kind of light emanating from behind this bird but the bird was you know concealing the light and the closer she got to the bird the more and more hot 
she felt. And this was conveyed during her, her hypnosis sessions. She was getting so hot that she thought she was gonna die. She was burning to death, literally, by approaching this bird. And at a certain moment, this bird caught on flame and burned into a pile of ashes. It was a phoenix. And since she is a Christian fundamentalist, people may be aware uh, that the phoenix was a very important symbol in early Christianity because it was used to symbolize Jesus. I don't know how much of this she could have heard, you know, at church. She was not talking to theologians who were <laughs> studying uh, symbolism of early Christianity, but the image of the phoenix is something that is ingrained into the social unconsciousness. A lot of ancient civilizations have legends of a phoenix. But also something else, because in the pile of ashes that were left over after, after the burning of this giant bird before her, out of the ashes emerged a fat, gray worm. And this is also a motif in early Christianity as well as antique mythology that when a phoenix burns up into a pile of ashes, it is reborn in the form of a gray worm. Did she know all this before her experience? Or is this just something tapping into the social unconsciousness and grabbing these symbols that already exist within each one of us? Anyways, this fat gray worm started telling her messages the usual bullshit that aliens tell people how we are not in tune with ourselves and we don't know the true nature of ourselves and she is here to deliver a message oh what message am i here to deliver we will tell you in time you have come here so we may tell you that we will tell you something that we will tell you so you may tell people something that we will tell you <laughs> damn man these fucking aliens bringing you to their planet or plane of existence and whatever just to tell you that they will tell you something in due time. Now go back, child, and tell everybody that we told you that they will be told. Now, obviously, all this was gained through a hypnotic regression. And during the sessions, Raymond Fowler and this other investigator just stopped for a brief moment to assess the situation and talk with each other whether they should even proceed with the investigation because, you know, this started off as a normal alien abduction where they, you know, essentially probe and experiment on somebody and that's totally acceptable. But once she went into their plane of existence and encountered this giant bird and all this Christian symbology and while burning to death she started saying, oh Jesus, oh Jesus, that's where they draw the line and are like, ugh. Is this ramblings of a crazy person and is this even worth investigating? Now, some later investigators, uh, huge investigators of the abduction phenomenon such as Bud Hopkins and John Mack were notorious for dismissing these claims. Whenever they'd have somebody who went into Jesus stuff, they'd say, uh, okay, we're not going there and let's just go back here. Future Darwin again. So I ended up reading Bud Hopkins' book, Missing Time, right after doing this episode and sure in Missing Time, Bud Hopkins uses the Betty Andreessen case to kind of provide credibility to his own uh, accounts based on the look of the beings that uh, Betty saw matching, you know, the, the descriptions of his own witnesses. Also, one of his witnesses was observed by the eye-like device that I previously stated. Um, so he, you know, used the eye-like device in the Betty Andreessen case as well as the Pascagoula case to uh, provide cre credibility to his own work. But 
um, he completely ignored the Phoenix Bird situation, and he pretended that that never happened. Also, like, if you read the Andreessen Affair, Raymond Fowler even says and suggests that maybe the whole Phoenix Bird situation was, you know, a, a false memory implanted by the Greys. But, as we will later see, Raymond Fowler turned out to be a very good guy, and he is the only guy who properly took care of this case and went through with it and documented the whole high strangeness of it, and I applaud him for this, and he is my hero now, <laughs> especially now that I'm reading more of his work and familiarizing myself. Also, Joshua Kutchin did not end up uh, writing a book about lights, but rather about death and the paranormal called Ecology of Souls, which is very heavily influenced by uh, the Whitley Strieber uh, case, but also the work of Raymond Fowler, and as we'll see later, Raymond Fowler goes into how alien abductions are tied to the afterlife. Back to the show now. But what Fowler did, and I applaud him for this, he actually made the great decision of treating this as a personal experience by the experiencer and letting them go however deep they want into the kooky and religious side of the whole thing because it is something that she experienced personally. She wasn't lying, she wasn't hoaxing anything, and this was definitely not something implanted into her by the hypnotist. Actually, if you read the book, they are constantly asking her and suggesting things like, oh, did it look like this? Oh, did it feel like this? And she'd be, no, it was actually like this. Like, they, she would most of the time negate every suggestion from the hypnotist and investigator. So you know that this woman knows what she experienced and is telling it as is, or at least as she personally perceives that she believes in what she went through. So I applaud Fowler for going down this route and allowing this person to express themselves fully and to go into the religious stuff. I'm not a religious person, but I think it's very important that this was allowed during this investigation, and that's why this case is the most baffling, most interesting case, and most well-researched one, because we actually have the full picture and the full story from the experiencer, their whole experience, what they went through, with all the emotion tied to it. And as somebody who focuses on the psychological aspect of these cases, it is very important that we are are provided an insight into the psychological framework of the observer of the phenomena because this is phenomena that they are experiencing that is filtered through their personality, through their psyche, and molded by it. So if somebody is, you know, a religious fundamental, it is very important that you allow them to express these things and not just focus on something that you deem objective because we're not talking about objective things. If you want to study objective things, go be a scientist and not a UFO researcher. You're talking to somebody who is under hypnosis, who is talking about a religious experience. What they perceive to be a religious experience, it is completely real to them because there is no doubt whether God exists or not. They are just, and th this is where Betty shines as a person, she is just telling it how it is, how she experienced it. She is not trying to force uh, 
gods and Christianity down the throats of the investigators. She knows in her own mind that God and Jesus exist. And she is experiencing this moment from that perspective. She is conveying all her emo emotions. She is conveying her perception of the whole thing. And it is up to us if we are studying this to study it for what it is. Instead of trying to cram our own religion of ufology down her throat, actually listen to what she has to say. But nevertheless, Fowler and this uh, hypnotist came to the conclusion like later in the book that this whole thing that happened in this plane of existence of the aliens, that this was a false memory implanted into her mind by the aliens for whatever purpose. That all, you know, the experimentation and the phasing through the door and whatnot, th that's totally real. That, you know, happened in the material objective world. But her going to this place and witnessing a phoenix burn to death and communicating with a with a fat gray worm. No, that's just a hallucination induced by the aliens. Ugh. This is something that Bud Hopkins likes to go into a lot. I don't like it when people have an agenda. Instead of accepting this experience for what it is as a psychological and emotional and yes, maybe even religious experience, they need to rationalize it and they need to cherry pick the parts which actually did happen you know, aliens coming from the sky and abducting people, that's totally real. But then dismiss something else which they cannot accept as, oh, that's just a fantasy induced by the aliens because the aliens want to trick us. Because they are tricksters. Uh, you mean like the fairies of <laughs> antique folklore. Oh no, aliens are a different thing. They have nothing to do with fairies. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, to be fair, and this is uh, more stuff I want to go into regarding Raymond Fowler. So at first, while writing this first book, The Andresen Affair. At first, he did think that this was, you know, a hallucination induced by the alien entities for whatever purpose. But later on, he wrote more, more books with Betty, and Betty went on to marry a guy who also had his own alien abduction experiences, and it turned out that both of them have been abducted since childhood, and that their uh, abduction experiences are probably correlated and that they were maybe abducted by the same group of aliens, whatnot. Um, in later books, she goes in to experiences where she was abducted, but not physically, but rather spiritually. Like, when she was uh, later abducted by these aliens during her later years in life, she was astrally projected to their plane of reality, but her physical body remained where it is. And this whole experience of her later evolved into something that is similar to out-of-body or near-death experiences. Something much more spiritual and psychedelic. And Raymond Fowler eventually learned that he himself was an abductee and that he was going through abduction experiences as well. He was not aware of this uh, while writing this first Andreas and Affair book, but this is something that evolved throughout the decades while interacting more and more with Betty Andreasen and her new husband and while expanding on this whole story. Now, I'm not such a huge fan of the expansion of the story. I am going to read the later books eventually. But I think this first account in the first book is the most credible one. Like with every paranormal case, the first account is the most credible one and everything that goes after that is a derivative 
is uh, an expansion, a DLC, if you will. It's not the original. Now, I'm not denying what she claims later on to have experienced after expanding her story a lot and going way out there. But I'm saying as this simmers in your mind throughout decades, it is molded by your psyche, by your emotions, by your religion, by your life experiences, and also in her case by sharing this experience. I don't want to say delusion, but experience with her husband, something that went on between Betty and Barney Hill as well. Future Darwin again. Oh boy, was I so wrong. I have actually started reading the Betty and Dresden Affair Phase 2, and oh boy, is it a much, much more interesting read than the first book. So as the first book, as you can see by, you know, this episode, is about an alien abduction, the second book is about high strangeness. Right after this first book was done, Betty and Dresden ended up uh, marrying a guy named Bob Luca. I think he met her because she was working as a waitress in a diner and then another waitress told him like I know somebody who has been through alien abduction experiences because he already already had these experiences before ever um meeting Betty so Betty helped him and uh, Betty got him to do a few sessions with Raymond Fowler or well most of the sessions were not with Raymond Fowler because he was busy at the time and he employed a whole team of investigators to you know do the hypnosis sessions on Bob Luca and on Betty and they uncovered a lot of stuff oh man not just uh, via uh, hypnosis and about the, you know, childhood alien abduction experiences, but like, while doing the hypnosis sessions, there were high strangeness moments of, you know, electronics going haywire, people seeing lights, light orbs, shadow people, stuff like that. The second book is totally wacky in a very, very positive way, and Raymond Fowler, while investigating for the second book, constantly kept writing, I just wanna quit this, and I just wanna throw everything Betty and and related to the trash. I don't want to do this anymore. Like, this is getting so weird and over the top, and I, I just can't keep up. So, guys, uh, this episode was recorded originally before I ever got more way deep into the Betty Andreas and stuff. Just go read everything you can and go read Raymond Fowler's other work, even though, even if you are not into, you know, near death experiences, outer body experiences, the afterlife, everything like that, there is a lot of stuff there to ponder over. So, back to the show. Now, anyway, throughout the decades as Raymond Fowler interacted more and more with her he realized that he himself was an abductee and his later books uh, would go into this a lot. Now in 2002 he released a book named UFO Testament Anatomy of an Abductee where he would go into his own personal abduction experiences. Now I don't know how much of this whole thing is a fantasy and is a somewhat fully ado of people sharing delusions between each other because he throughout the decades went from, you know, a nuts and bolts ufology guy just like J. Allen Hynek to somebody who is more open to the psychic connection and spiritual connection of the UFO phenomenon, which I approve of because I also think the UFO phenomenon is a psychic, a psychological, a psychedelic thing and not a nuts and bolts thing. But he went a bit farther <laughs> than I'm willing to go and maybe that's just my own bias and my own problem. But I wanted to read something from him and this is 
from a book that he just recently published. This book is from 2020, and it is titled UFOs The Ultimate Abduction. And I think this uh, description of the book on Amazon clarifies uh, what his whole view on the UFO phenomenon has molded into now that he's over 80 years old. And also after decades of interaction with Betty Andreessen, her husband, and this whole thing. So he states in the description of this book on Amazon, this book addresses and answers a rampart question within ufology, whether UFOs are physical or psychic in nature. In my early days as a UFO investigator, I would throw UFO reports that contained paranormal phenomena in the proverbial wastebasket. This is what J. Allen Hynek was known to do. My position, etched in the halls of Congress, was that UFOs were machine-like physical craft from another star system. However, as time went by, I watched in dismay as several respected UFO researchers moved from a physical to a psychic interpretation of the UFO phenomenon. Little did I know then that my own view would also slowly but surely be honed to accommodate even deeper levels of the psychic components triggered by the UFO experience. Stringed two together by amazing synchronicities, I became obsessed one after the other with UFO abductions, out-of-the-body experiences, near-death experiences, after-death communications, quantum physics, and the time-slip phenomenon. Studies of these phenomena led me to the startling conclusion that they and UFOs are interconnected and all parts of one encompassing meta-phenomenon. I concluded that UFOs originate from the dimension NDEers describe NDEers are people who experience near-death experiences, and that we are transitory citizens of that world of light, again light being an important aspect, who shuffle back and forth between a particle dimension and a wave or light dimension through reincarnation. <sighs> this is where he loses me, but man, you you got there, you you tickled my fancy, and then reincarnation. Okay, moving on. The UFO abductions reflect UFO entities monitoring and caring for the human particle form in preparation for their metamorphosizing by OBES, OBES is outer body experiences, into a new body of light in the afterlife dimension. Uh, this is tied to Betty Andreessen's later claims where she said she was abducted, but like her astral body was abducted, her physical body would remain where it is, and her astral body would be converted into a light entity where she would encounter these tall human-like entities which were like divine beings and whatnot. The robed human appearing entities that greet NDERs at the world of light, yeah, that's what I just said, appear to be controlling this process and to be genetically related to humans. PLES, on the other hand, reflect physical humans returning and repeating this process by reincarnation as part of a natural, constant, interbalanced exchange between matter and energy. Ugh between particle and wave. Inconceivable as this might be to the reader, yeah. The final analysis reached by the author is that UFOs represent a final abduction for one's current life and that we are property. Okay, so Raymond D. Fowler got enlightened and started to treat the UFO phenomenon as it should be treated, as a psychological, psychic, psychedelic experience, as a more spiritual thing, as a more abstract, subjective experience rather than an objective reality. I am totally in for that. But as you may see, he went into some place, and I think this place was heavily influenced by Betty Andreessen, because Betty 
Marty Andreessen was the one who was later on claiming to meet these giant human entities of light that would greet out-of-body experiencers and near-death experiencers in this other dimension of reality and whatnot. <sighs> Maybe this is why people stick to the extraterrestrial hypothesis, because once you become open to the psychic connection of the UFO phenomenon, you go down a rabbit hole where you never reach a conclusion, but rather just keep going and going and falling and falling deeper and deeper into insanity. Or is it offensive if I'm saying it like that? If <sighs> It's a religious, spiritual experience. It is just too woo for me to go beyond the psychological, uh, psychoanalytical side of this whole thing. Future Darwin again, and boy was I so very wrong this time. So yeah, I made this episode originally a few months ago, and before uh, even going way, way deep into the Andreas and stuff, but also kind of, you know, the Whitley Strieber stuff, and before listening to Joshua Kutchen go on podcast talking about the ties between death, the Fey Realm, alien abductions, all that shebang. And now that he has released Ecology of Souls, a giant two-volume tome, that talks just about everything that Raymond Fowler said there, but in a much more credible comparative folklore way. I am opening up to this. There is something here that ties alien abductions, near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, psychic phenomena, and death all in, into an, an all-encompassing meta-phenomenon. And a lot of ties to Fae folklore because Fae used to be treated a lot as, you know, psychopomps. These beings that lead souls into the afterlife. And this afterlife may be this other dimension or this other place where they brought Betty. And people who have either psychic experiences or paranormal experiences are usually people who have a close brush with death. Now, though Betty Andreessen lived to be a ripe old age and she passed away just recently uh, this year, she did have a lot of losses in her life. She lost a few of her own children and and she lost, I think, her stepson, Bob Luca's own son, who is the one who perpetrated the idea that uh, she and Bob were hoaxing and doing all of this for money and fame. Uh, later on, Bob and... Betty would write for some blog that their stepson passed away from a drug overdose and that he had a lot of substance abuse issues and, you know, retaliated against the family and whatnot. Like, it's plausible. It's plausible that all of this could, you know, be just bullshit and that it is all just for money and fame and book deals, but it is very uncanny how many similarities Betty Andreessen's case has with Faye folklore, with NDEs, OBs, with experience experiences of other people who have had OBs, NDs, or alien abductions. It is uncanny all the uh, poltergeist activity that was going on around Betty. It is just uncanny how much archetypal folkloric imagery and symbolism was pulled out of Betty's head during these hypnotic sessions. Even if it is all a lie, even if it is a delusion, even I don't know. It is just an amazing case because we were able to pull so much archetypal archetypal imagery from this one woman who channeled the collective unconsciousness, if not channeling aliens. And, you know, I don't believe in the ATH. Now, I also need to clarify something regarding Raymond E. Fowler. Raymond Fowler was a de 
devout Christian himself. Now, as you may have noticed, Raymond Fowler was a very nuts and bolts guy, and he was actually very, very skeptical, very methodical, very scientific. Despite his own faith, and despite him being a devout Christian, he did not believe Betty Andreessen at first, and all of this religious symbolism, and even when she went into the religi religious stuff, he just thought about maybe stopping because it, he thought of it as nonsense, even though he was religious himself. So it is very interesting that a guy like that, who is very religious, has the capability of being very methodical, scientific, and skeptical. And also through time and through interacting with Betty Andreas, and he was able to transition from the nuts and bolts approach to ufology into the psychic and spiritual connection. I also must say that Raymond Fowler is one of the best researchers out there that we ever had in the UFO community, and he was one of the first to go into all of this psychic uh, uh, afterlife connection of the UFO phenomenon, and most of the people who are now talking about that, I heard on other podcasts like Contactees talking about these same concepts, nobody ever mentions Raymond Fowler. It's like they are plagiarizing his work and not acknowledging him, and this is becoming a very big topic now, this whole afterlife and death connection to the paranormal and uh, alien abductions. Uh, Joshua Kutchin, I think, is the only one who credits Raymond Fowler and who acknowledges that the guy deserves some recognition. I must also say this, that Raymond Fowler's later books, I think it's called The Watchers, is about this concept that there are these alien entities called The Watchers who are there to watch over the planet. I did not read the book, but my buddy uh, Red Pill Junkie did, and we discussed it a bit, so it's essentially like they are helping people cross over into the spirit or afterlife realm, but also they are trying to to uh, preserve life on Earth by, let's say, preserving uh, plants and animals and whatnot, just like in the Higdon abduction, his alien told him that they were collecting animals off the Earth. This ties into the whole Noah's Ark thing in the Bible. Very, very archetypal stuff, but also very Guyanist and ecological, and this speaks to me, and I resonate with it. Because of the whole concept of conservation biology and of even what we do now, we have banks of, of plant seeds so we can uh, store genetic information in case species go extinct so at least we have their uh, genetic data so we may eventually revive them because every living being on the planet is a genetic resource. And also this goes into the Gaia hypothesis a lot, Raymond Fowler's work because in the Andreessen Affair Phase 2, the second book, Betty has a lot of encounters with aliens which are based in uh, nature in a way in messages of how she should take care of nature more. And after having these experiences and they hypnotized her, uh, bring her back to, you know, a child, she said that after having these alien abductions, she feels one with nature. She feels love towards Mother Earth and she feels like she needs to be more in tune with animals and plants and that she does not want to hurt the planet. Very Guyanist and I am very intrigued by all this. Is a Guyan conscious is actually communicating to Betty Andreessen via puppetry of aliens. I don't know, but I am still not done with the book. It's very fascinating. I want to make an episode about that when I finish the book. 
So, back to the episode. Anyway, back to Betty Andreessen's original account. After communicating with this worm, which was birthed out of the burning of a giant 15-foot-tall phoenix bird, she went back to the UFO and was brought back to our dimension, or planet, if you still believe these are aliens. And at one point, Kwaska, you remember the leader of the aliens who was communicating mostly with her, he put his hands around her shoulders and looked her directly into her eyes and she said that some kind of antenna things emerged from his head and that his head transformed into something very similar to a bee's head. Now some people who cover this case would say that he turned into a bee creature to add more to the high strangeness of the whole thing but I think she was just referring to these some kind of ridges around his eyes that turned out looking like antenna and the shape of his eyes morphed into what would be the shape of a bee's head because bee's eyes take over most of the space of their head or whatnot. I can't remember what happened next. I think she just found herself in her home, was either asleep or something. I don't know. She woke up in the morning the next day and proceeded to make pancakes for the whole family. <laughs> the end. Or not, because throughout the decades she would go into these very, very intricate... Oh accounts, as I said, of outer body experiences and meeting these tall humanoid entities of light and receiving knowledge and they'd constantly tell her how we do not know who we are and we are so disassociated from our true nature and that they will eventually tell humanity what they have to tell her but without telling her anything vague alien nonsense. Nevertheless, I think this is a very, very insightful and very important case. It is very controversial because it obviously challenges the whole extraterrestrial hypothesis because most ufologists want aliens to be nuts and bolts, material things, UFOs being craft that traverse through space between planets, and aliens being aliens, beings from another planet. And whenever this goes into something spiritual or psychedelic, they just dismiss it and say, oh, that's the imagination of the observer. But no, it's not the imagination of they're talking about aliens putting something up your ass. Very important, very monumental case. Gives a lot of credence to every other hypothesis out there that is not extraterrestrial or conspiracy related. She actually was not frightened as much of the entities. This was not a negative experience for her. This was a positive spiritual religious experience that shaped the rest of her life and that influenced her life in a very positive way, I'd say. She was not afraid of the aliens and going like, oh, what are they doing? Oh, I don't want to see them ever again. This is terrifying, blah, blah, blah. She was like, oh, this is very interesting. This is very enlightening. They are sharing knowledge with me that is only reserved for me. I am the chosen one. Okay, that goes into channeler stuff. Well, there is a channeler aspect to this because at one point during the hypnotic sessions, she started speaking in tongues. They actually asked her, like, if the aliens have some kind of message, like, that they want her to tell the investigators. And she said yes. And then she said something was taking control of her mind and her body. And then she started speaking in tongues. <laughs> 
<laughs> they even in the book wrote everything that she said, tried to find the letters for it. It was complete gibberish and nonsense. And then she claimed that she was channeling some other alien who would tell them what they need to know once they need to know it and whatnot. I know I'm laughing at this. I know I'm <laughs> being very silly with it. It is very silly. And it being very silly is not a reason to dismiss it and not a reason to say that it should be ignored and it should be thrown in the trash pile. This is actually one of the most important alien abduction cases because it provides us a lot of the psychology of the witness. Because the investigators were open to humor her side of the story to listen to it, to let her express herself. She was completely genuine and she believed in everything that happened to her that she claims to have happened. And out of all this, we get gold. We get this whole account of a phoenix bird, which was actually witnessed by other alien abduction experiencers later on and is evidence of this motif of a flaming phoenix being a part of the social unconsciousness and a symbol that is shared among every person because we are all humans and we are all interconnected and we share the same symbology. Once you are in this psychedelic spiritual state, something is tapping into the social unconsciousness which is ingrained into your mind and pulling these images out. It is very interesting stuff and it is worth studying, not from a ufological bullshit perspective, of aliens, but rather from a folkloric perspective and a psychoanalytical and sociological perspective. We can use these accounts to prove the existence of Jungian archetypes. This person is going through a psychedelic experience and they are pulling imagery that is archetypal and that is shared between everybody on the planet. And yeah, I know I keep saying these are psychedelic experiences because they are. I see all alien abductions as psychedelic and spiritual experiences. I see them as something subjective happening within the mind of the observer. Now, I don't know if this whole narrative was experienced by her at that original date where she felt something happened to her, or if it is something being constructed from new during the hypnosis session. But however you put it, this person during the construction of this whole narrative is in an altered psychological state and is pulling from the social unconsciousness these archetypal images and incorporating them into the narrative of their experience. So yeah, very, very important case. A lot of people want to dismiss it as kooky. A lot of ufologists want to dismiss it because it is not what they want to hear and it does not prove aliens and flying saucers. It actually makes the thing much more deep and complicated and interesting. And all they want is just for everything to be simple. We want UFOs to be flying vessels and we want aliens to be beings from another planet. We don't want all of this to be archetypal imagery from a social unconsciousness that is shared among all people because we are interconnected because we all originate from the same source, Mother Nature, which is influencing us to have these hallucinations and psychedelic experiences where we pull off... <laughs> where we pull out these archetypal images and communicate with, with each other on some other plane of existence that is not material and whatnot. No, keep this simple. This is just flying craft and 
fucking aliens. Now, if you ask me if this was not studied by ufologists, if this was studied by, say, psychiatrists or sociologists or medical professionals or whatnot, like, I would be very interested to see during these hypnosis sessions what was going on with her brain waves, to see if there was any difference in brain chemicals during all this, because we have all heard of DMT and we have all heard of how people experience these these meetings with machine elves and cosmic alien-like entities during DMT trips. And yeah, you could say DMT is a drug that's used recreationally, but there is a lot of evidence to suggest that DMT is released by our own brains because it is a naturally occurring molecule. It is a neurotransmitter, and there's evidence to suggest that it is released by our brain during hypoxia when oxygen levels are low so it may protect the neurons, but in turn, it induces these visions of otherworldly beings. I truly believe that this is connected to the alien abduction experience and that alien abduction experiencers are people who have maybe some kind of different brain chemistry and maybe have sleep apnea. And while they sleep, they cause some kind of self-induced acid trip. Not necessarily that they are taking drugs recreationally, but their mind is the one producing the drug and bringing them to this altered state of consciousness. Is it just a hallucination? Is it just a dream or an altered state of consciousness? Or is it a gateway to another abstract dimension? We don't know because people are not investigating this. Debunkers and skeptics are dismissing all this as just kooky nonsense and that alien abduction experiences don't have a scientific value, while ufologists are also dismissing these way out there cases as kooky nonsense because it does not prove their agenda, because it is much more complex than they are willing to accept. So yeah, guys, to end this episode, like, I intended this to be a commentary. I intended this to be just me providing my two cents on the whole thing. This episode was very weird, but it is about a very weird case, a very weird psychedelic religious spiritual experience of an alien abduction. In the end, the, in the, end, the case is much weirder than how weird my episode was. And I don't know, maybe this is the right way to approach these very out there topics. Just sharing your own experience, sharing your own perception, your own thought process. I've been told by many listeners that they rather enjoy these one-off episodes where I just go off on a ramble and share my thought process as it is, you know, occurring to me off the top of my head without any kind of scripts. So yeah, I think this is how I want to approach some of these bigger cases, not not just not reading off of Wikipedia every single detail that happened, but sharing what the experience means to me and how it influences me and where my thoughts go. That's something no podcaster is willing to provide because they make something with, you know, mass appeal and most podcasts are made for the general audience and not for people who are deep into this stuff. And if you are listening to my show, I am assuming that you are deep into this shit. And I'm assuming that I don't have to go over the same thing over and over again. Just go listen to any other podcast. If you want the details, go listen to any other podcast. I completely support it, but it's not something that I want to make. 
It's not something that I want to go into. I don't feel like narrating a script where we have every single detail of everything that happened and then you can listen and think that you are now smarter by listening to me read bullshit that somebody else, else wrote. If you want a genuine intellectual experience, then you should be open to listen to what somebody has to tell you. Something you cannot hear anywhere else because it is a personal experience and it is the narrator's own genuine perception of the whole thing. So yeah, guys, if this episode piqued your interest, I highly suggest go find The Andreasen Affair, buy it on Kindle, buy it on Audible, or if that's too much for you, just get a script subscription and you'll have access to hundreds and thousands of books and audiobooks. Just don't base all your knowledge on stupid podcasts like my own. Podcasts are not even a secondary source of information, they're tertiary. If you want the real story and if you want to assess your own feelings based on something, go find the primary source, invest your time and effort into it. I invested my own time to read the whole book. And that's why I now want to share my own thoughts on it and maybe inspire somebody to go read a fucking book.